There's a, um, there's a famous true story often told of a man called Arland Dean Williams Jr. He died just a little over 30 years ago in Washington DC and he died by drowning. And he died in the Potomac River where the plane that he was, uh, he was in crashed into the water because of engine failure. It's well documented. It was uh, the Air Florida Flight 90. It was a US, U.S. domestic passenger flight. It was flying from Arlington County, Virginia, through to Fort Lauderdale in Florida. And yet on January the 13th, 1982, the plane crashed into the 14th Street Bridge over the Potomac River. It killed all but four passengers and one flight attendant. And Ireland Dean Williams Jr., or as he was known at the time, the sixth passenger, was later identified. He was a 46-year-old bank examiner. He used to be in the army. And yet there was a peculiarity surrounding his death in the water because, well, he was given this lifeline from the helicopter. And again and again and again, he gets this lifeline. But he doesn't grab it. You don't know why. It just happened that the plane went down next to this bridge and there were TV cameras set up so you could watch it. They were there pressing record. You could stream the images into people's front rooms and you see the winch going down and you're thinking, why is he not grabbing it? Why are they not taking it? And it turns out that was just one perspective on things. People were seeing things just from one angle. Because to answer the question, why wasn't he winched away? Well, because he was rescuing others. He was passing the winch to other people selflessly, to another and another. Other people were saved. Now, where the crash happened, there is a bridge named after him. Where he graduated from military college, there are many memorials dedicated to him. Where he grew up in Illinois, there's an elementary school named after this man. And the reason I tell that story as we begin our time this this evening in John 18, is that as we read these events in the garden in Gethsemane, it's very easy to just see it from one perspective, from one angle. And it's all a bit confusing. We can easily get the wrong end of the stick as to what's going on. It all looks a bit like chaos. It looks a bit like the plan going pear-shaped. I don't know what you think about the cross. I don't know, maybe that's why you're here. Maybe you're just looking in on Christian things. Maybe you're considering whether Jesus is at all relevant. Whether he matters. And yet what we have in John 18 this evening, well the claim is we have an eyewitness account. We have a man who was there from one of Jesus' closest friends. And from here on in, in John's Gospel, the cross will increasingly come into focus. This is a man who was there. It's not hearsay, it's not fable, it's not myth. But it's an eyewitness account. Events that so convinced him that church history would tell us he ends up locked in a prison. A man who, as he says elsewhere, heard and saw and touched Jesus. And we get to read what he heard and he saw, and he touched. We're with him in the garden. We're seeing things through his eyes. We see little details that you wouldn't otherwise expect to see. So what I want us to do this evening is to try and tell the same story, but from two perspectives, from two angles, almost as if we're wearing two different pairs of glasses. Because what John does is not tell us just what he saw, but he explains it in such a way to tell us what's going on. Why this 
why this strange encounter in the garden actually happens. So our first perspective then is through a human perspective, if you like. This is the road to the cross, the human perspective, first point. You remember, if you've been around for the last few weeks, the story so far in John is we have spent four chapters around a table. We've been eating a Passover meal, this special Jewish festival, and he's been teaching his disciples how they're going to get on when he's gone. And it started in 13 with him humbly washing their feet, cleaning away the dirt from the outside of these men. In the middle of this upper room discourse, we had one of their number, Judas, leaving the room to betray him. And it ended last week with Jesus in chapter 17. Do you remember praying these enormous prayers for them? Praying for us. Praying for believers down the centuries who would, who would receive the baton of the gospel and pass it on to others. For believers to be united around this gospel. And that's where we've come from. And now verse 1 in chapter 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley... On the, other side of, on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. This, this is Gethsemane. It's likely it was a, a local walled garden, probably full of olive trees. And it seems it was somewhere they'd come before. And there they go. And suddenly, we're reunited with Judas again, verse 2. It's not just Judas, though. Judas has, has company. And the company doesn't seem friendly. Verse 3, he came guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. So it's a peculiar mix. It's an unlikely alliance. You've got Roman soldiers on the one hand. Remember, the Romans were occupying the land at the time. They were unwelcome landlords. They were hated. And yet, as well as that, we've got officials You've got the Jewish temple police, if you like. They come from the religious powers that be. They come to sort out this troublemaker, Jesus, once and for all. They were usually enemies. You've got soldiers and religious leaders, and they're united around their hatred of Jesus. And in the middle of them, we have Judas. From a, from a human perspective, this is a story of betrayal, a story of treachery. Maybe treachery by a man who's disillusioned. This, this one they get, he gave it all up for. He left everything. Maybe this man who's greedy. Maybe he's thirsty for money. Betrayal from Judas. And yet with the betrayal from Judas comes misunderstanding from Peter. Dear old Peter. Peter who jumps in with both feet. Verse 10. And Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. So I not drink the cup the Father's given me. It feels like an eyewitness account, doesn't it? There are details there that you wouldn't expect. You've got body parts given. You've got a man's name, Malchus. You're told it's actually his right ear that's been chopped off. And it feels very real because the disciples get it wrong again. This isn't the stuff of legends where they would have rippling muscles and they would always get it right. Here are the disciples, weak, 
worldly and missing the point. And John doesn't hide that. They've just had four chapters of the most amazing small group teaching you can imagine. And now they are utterly confused by what's going on. Disillusioned little rabbits looking into the bright headlights of Roman doom. He promised them so much and it's all come tumbling down in front of their eyes. And so here comes Peter with his sword. And we feel like we're with John in the garden. The smell of betrayal, the smell of blood. And yet, in a sense, that's just a story from, from street level. From one angle, from one perspective. It's much more than just a historical account. There's more than just soldiers in the garden. More than just torches and weapons. The second angle is the divine perspective. So the first is the human, the second is the divine. If we think it's just a human story, then we've missed what it's about. I think at the very heart of the account, you see Jesus utterly, utterly in charge of events. Even here, even when it looks most unlikely, even when the disciples doubt it the most, here is Jesus in charge, in control working out plans and purposes in the world. And let me just say, if that's true here, then maybe that's true in in your life, in my life. That, That thing that you worry about and it keeps you awake at night. That that thing that you consistently find it really hard to trust him about. You know, maybe he's in control. Maybe even though it looks chaotic. He's got plans and he's got purposes. Maybe that series of events that you look back into your past and you don't quite get what was going on there. Maybe someday there'll be clarity. So notice here, we have got plans and purposes being accomplished even though it's chaos. God is at work in the messy stuff. And you say, well, how is he at work? Where can I see that in these verses? And I think there are at least six little reasons that John places there for us. Six little gems, if you like, to find in the mud in the garden. Six things that we can see from the divine perspective that God is in charge. The first one is there in verse 2. And that is that they go to a place that Judas knows well. Now, Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And it sounds too simple to say it, But Jesus doesn't hide. I take it he could have. He knows Judas has gone to betray him. He left at the meal. We saw that back in chapter 13. Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. He knows Judas is going. And yet he still goes to a place that Judas would know well. Imagine the story if um, Judas turns up to the garden with soldiers in tow, boldly walking into the olive grove. There's not a person to be seen. No, this is going to a place where you knew you'd be found. This isn't hiding away in a secret garden. It's on the way past. It is a garden as well. It strikes me that gardens seem to feature very highly in God's dealings with his world. If you read the Bible as a whole, you see it all goes wrong at the start in a garden. There's temptation which leads to denial and doubting God's words. 
And you fit to the end of the Bible and you see there's going to be a garden, at least a, a, a garden city. This first garden magnified uh, thousands of times, full of God's people, having known his grace and forgiveness and mercy. A place of ultimate blessing. And we're in a garden now. Not a place of blessing, but a place of betrayal. So he goes to a place that he knows he'll be found. The second one is there in verse 4. And John's just pretty blatant. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them. So it might look like events are conspiring. It might look like it's gone wrong. But actually Jesus is fully aware of what's going to happen. And so John just blurts it out. I take it having written it down later. Puts the pieces together in his own mind and says Jesus knew what was coming. It wasn't taking him by surprise. Second little gem. He knew what was going to happen. The third one is there in verse 5 to 6. And we've seen it week after week after week if you've been with us in John's Gospel in these evening talks. Because we see really who we're dealing with in John's Gospel. Pick it up with me from verse 5. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he said, who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Verse 7, again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus said, I told you that I am he. It's a strange response, isn't it, there in verse 6. Because they, they draw back and they fall to the ground. I think, again, John is wanting us to latch on to who Jesus really is. His actual answer to the question is, I am. I am, which, remember, is the name in the Old Testament that the people give to God. It was the name that God uses of himself. It was the name that you could not use. And once again, Jesus boldly, brashly, deliberately uses it. We saw it earlier in John. Chapter 8. And they tried to kill him for it. They thought he was blaspheming. Of course, it means when people say to us, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God, did he? I'd also say they're not quite right. You see, this isn't a mistake. He's using a name that only God can use. And he's using it about himself. Isaiah's pretty close to claiming to be God. And they hear it. And they fall to the ground. Number four. Again, you see, it's not random. It's not out of control. But there are things being fulfilled. There are boxes being ticked. Verse eight and nine. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, and let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Now even in the thick of it, even when it's really bad, Jesus looks after, he protects, he preserves his disciples, he keeps them safe. Words that he has spoken would be fulfilled. We'll see it even more at the cross. But his concern is not for himself, it's for others. For his disciples. For those whom the Father has given him. And what is it about these words? What are these words that he has spoken? These words that he's fulfilling? Well, I think if we were there, we would have heard them just hours before, in chapter 17. 
Jesus prays to the Father for his disciples and he prays, verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that none you gave me, by that name you gave me, sorry. None have been lost except the one doomed to destruction. Jesus prays that the Lord would help him to protect them and keep them safe. And even in the garden, he's doing that. That's a priority for him. And why does it matter? Well, it matters because if we can trust Jesus in these little things, then maybe we can trust him in the other stuff, in the big things. I think that's what John's getting at. John, Jesus prays to preserve the safety of the disciples and to protect them, to keep us safe. And he has done. And so tomorrow morning, you can trust him. And you can lean on him. And you can rely on him because at the worst time in the garden, he's caring about his disciples. Now I think gems 5 and 6 are the key ones though. Verse 11. Gem number 5. This is where it's all been heading. And this is the focus, I think, of the section in verse 11. If you dropped off, now is your time to jump back on again. Verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Notice the implicit temptation there to not go God's way. To not go the way of the cross. To avoid God's will. Might remind you again of another garden. A garden where God's will was done away with. Where his word was doubted and denied. Maybe a, maybe a rush of blood to Peter's head. But his, his stupidity with this sword and his poor chap Malchus shows us the kind of king that Jesus has come to be. It reminds us two things. It reminds us who's in charge. Because it's the father God the Father is the one in charge. Shall not drink the cup the Father has given me. This is his plan. This is why Jesus came. Jesus is his king. God is in charge. God the Father. And yet it shows us something too of what the plan is. This cup that the Father has given him. Drinking the cup. I take it that cup is the cup of God's anger. It's his righteous and just and measured anger against sin. It's the response of a, of a holy God to rebellion against him. It's there in lots of places in the Old Testament. Just one for you, Isaiah 51 verse 17. So the wake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the goblet that makes people stagger. This is God's anger poured out we have a God who cares about sin and wrongdoing and and whatever it is in the papers this week about political dictators and people being abused and exploited and riots and knifings and torture and wars we have a God who doesn't just pretend it will go away but he's done something about it a God who is patient a God who will punish And Jesus will face God's anger. He will face the cup. That is why he came. 
Because our just God must deal with the sin of his people. Now to be honest, it's around this point that people in our culture start to get a bit twitchy and come up with objections and concerns. Maybe that's you this evening. Maybe you struggle with that idea. Maybe you say, well, how could God punish his own son? That sounds very harsh. Doesn't sound like the kind of God I'd like to believe in. If that is, you come and chat to me afterwards. But for now, just know this, that Jesus was not manipulated or coerced or tricked. He's willing. And more than that, he's one of the planners. And it's fascinating, if you've been around week after week, you'll have seen some astounding claims from the lips of Jesus about who he is. The fact that he is a life giver. The fact that he's going to judge the world. And so listen to this quote. Says Jesus is God. He isn't just an innocent third party. He is the judge himself, suffering. The one who determines the punishment takes it. The one who passes judgment receives it. It is Jesus, the incarnate God. So just for now, to properly understand what's going on at the cross, we have to understand something of who God is, of of the Trinity, the nature of God as Trinity. He is the judge himself, the one who will judge, taking the cup of God's anger upon himself. But the second question that often comes up is, well, I've heard that Jesus didn't sin. Jesus, God the Son, was perfect, so why is God the Father punishing him? He doesn't deserve it. I I can understand that God is just, that he's righteous, that he must do something about sin. But why does Jesus get punished? What's the Father got to be angry about him? It just just sounds so unfair, people say. Which leads us on to our sixth little aspect. And it's there in verse 14. Our final gem in verse 14, in this muddy garden. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. It's fascinating, isn't it, how John just pops in and reminds us who this Caiaphas chap was. He came up in chapter 11, who were around with us then. What's the father got to be angry about? It's not the sin of Jesus. It's the sin of the people. The sin of his people. There's a substitution going on. There's a swap happening. It's like in football where, in Euro 2012, where people come on for somebody else. They take the place of another. There's a swap happening. I might remember, um, I was reminded of this recently, back in 2011, the Japanese tsunami. Do you remember the nuclear power workers in Fukushima? They willingly exposed themselves to lethal doses of radiation. They tried to make the reactors stable to save others. They basically sacrificed themselves. Now there are at least six, are said, to have exceeded the lifetime legal limits for radiation. So so for them, I take it, it's just a matter of time before they die. But that kind of picture gives us a little something, an inkling as to what Jesus was doing. He deliberately, willingly rescues his people from the anger of the Father, from the cup of God's wrath. So that we don't have to. 
we have a substitute. I think that's just what we need to hear when we've mucked up again this week. When you look back at your, your last few days and, and you know your own sin, you know your heart, you know what you've said, you know what you've done. Maybe you had such great intentions about changing your ways. I'll never do that again. And we do. So we can be assured that God loves his people not because of anything we can bring along. Nothing to try and impress him. Any kind of track record of good behaviour. Any number of of ticked boxes for goodness. We can rest. He, He loves us because of Jesus. Because of the truth of what Caiaphas says. Yet he didn't know what he meant. Jesus took the cup of God's anger for us. Verse 11. Because one man died for the people. Verse 14. And so you see from street level in this garden a very human event. You see mess and you see chaos and you see dirt and you see betrayal and you see tragedy, you see blood. And yet dotted through the garden you've got six or more little gems. And so again you can be assured that in the midst of messy life God is at work. We've seen it in the mornings you've been around in Ruth. You've seen God working through normal people like us who get it wrong, who make a mess of things and yet he works through events to bring about his plans and his purposes wherever we may be, at work or at school or college or wherever it is. God is at work through the midst of messy life. Now these next few weeks we'll see the cross is coming closer. We're zooming in there. And yet for those who can hear, John is saying, here's what the cross is about. It's significant. It's important. It's about sin being dealt with. It's about life being one. Let's pray.